Okay, we're uh, back with the uh, education game. And uh, as we talked uh, earlier, uh, we have uh, two guests on the uh, on the podcast today. Uh, one is uh, Diane Johnson, uh, past HISD school board member. And uh, the second is Judith Cruz, uh, a current HISD school board member. Uh, Matt, uh, you ran for the school board, right? Do not remind me, Scott. <laughs> Why'd you bring that up, man? We were having such a good day. Well, no, the reason I bring it up is being on a school board is a tough job. Oof. One of the HISD old timers uh, once said to me that uh, the school board is the bedrock of democracy, mm. but it is probably the lowest denominator of democracy when it comes to criticism, right? (laughs) That, that like, oh my God, you, you are really on the front lines as a, as a board member, especially in a small town because everyone knows, knows who you are. Right. I don't think it's any bigger in a big town, Scott. Yeah. Right. The ammunition just gets larger, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So how about we bring them on? What do you think? Yeah. Let's, let's, uh, let's bring Diane and, and, and Judith on. I don't know whether uh, you could hear what uh, Matt and I were uh, talking about, but uh, uh, about the uh, the advice from the HISD old timer that uh, school board jobs are, re- you know, really a lot of responsibility with very little return, hmm. you know, in, in terms of appreciation. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it's a thankless job. No pay, um, lots and lots of time, hours, energy. Um, time spent learning and, and analyzing and thinking about the decisions. And, you know, I'm a person that prays a lot too. And so um, definitely um, a lot of time put into this. Sure. It's, uh, yeah, but you know, I wouldn't um, take anything for the experience. I don't know if it's the most productive way I spent eight years because, uh, you know, it, it, elections have consequences and you can pass what you think is going to change the world. And by darn, somebody can come in and undo it overnight. So uh, but the experience in terms of my growth and and what I learned about myself and what I learned about other people, I wouldn't take anything for the experience. So, Matt, I hope you'll run again. <laughs> no promises. And, pl- but- and plus... You two get to be on this show because if you hadn't been, if you hadn't been or, uh, on the board or currently on the board, you might not have made it on on the education game uh, podcast. Bonus. Just no idea that there were those kind of perks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, let's uh, let's get to the interview. Yeah. Um, so uh, both of you are uh, uh, one a past board member, one a current board member. You know, I, I guess my first question is, as, as board members, what did you see or what do you currently see as the role of parents uh, in their child's learning? What it, from the board perspective, what, what do you see parents being responsible for? 
Diane, we'll start with you. Uh, I guess first and foremost, parents are responsible for bringing the raw material in as good a shape as they can. And by that, I mean uh, children who are willing to take responsibility for their learning, something I know that's near and dear to your heart, Scott. Um, but I, I think those characteristics start really, really early. And then, of course, it's just much better if they arrive and you've maybe told them what an A and a B is and maybe you talk in uh, uh, using bigger words and explain concepts to them. But I think the... Uh, the main responsibility for parents is to work on the uh, character develop, the interest in learning, and bring bring a student to school who is, to the best of their ability, they've equipped, ready to learn. Judith, how about you? What's what's the uh, what's the parents' role? So, in addition to everything that Diane said, I believe the role of the parent is to be an advocate. Um, for their student and really their community. Because when one parent speaks, they not only speak for their student, but they represent so many parents. And um, what I see happening, and I don't think this is unique to HISD, I think this is probably a problem um, across the board, is you know parents don't know what they don't know. And many times I've seen that parents trust the system to educate their kid, and so they have every intention to advocate for them to um, seek out the best opportunities. But when they send their child every day to school, they absolutely believe that they are getting the best education that they should be. They trust the teachers. They trust the administration to do what is the best for their children. Um, and when that doesn't happen, sometimes they don't know that. Hmm. And those that do figure it out, find another school for their child, move if they have the ability. Um, parents will do whatever it takes make sure that their child is getting the education that they deserve and the education that they feel that um, best suits them. And so uh, when, you know, schools aren't living up to that promise, um, it really frustrates me. And that really introduces uh, the, uh, the equity challenge uh, for you as board members, right? That, uh, you know, and I, I bet everyone on on, on this podcast, uh, we, we all had kids uh, that spent time in HISD or, or other districts. And, uh, uh, you know, we could, we kind of knew how to, if I can say this, kind of work the system. Uh, but then you have parents that are totally like like you said, Judith, they don't know what they don't know. So now all of a sudden, there are certain things that are being done for kids like ours, but not being done for kids of other parents. And I think that that introduces a lot of inequity uh, in, in the system. Would you agree? Absolutely. You know, one of the things that I learned while running last year um, was just the depth Judith, of your comment you just made, the depth of misunderstanding, when I would share some just basic stats about, say, reading, third grade reading, people had no idea that it was as bad as we're talking about. Um, they, they thought that there must be something wrong with the data or maybe I was making up something to make a point. They had no idea whatsoever how few of their children were actually reading on grade level. Uh, very discouraging. Yeah. 
let's let's kind of shift over to um, well, both of your parents, and what we'd like you to do is now not as a board member, but as a parent. Um, did did you or are you currently feeling frustrations as parents with the traditional school system? And if you did, could you share what some of those frustrations were? Either Diane, you, before you became a, a board member, uh, or Judith, currently. I I definitely had felt frustrations, and uh, and it was actually with both kids, but for different reasons. Uh, our oldest had she had epilepsy, and so she was went to school medicated, uh, kind of three sheets to the wind, and so. In the early grade, she's fine now, praise God, but she, in the early grade, she really was a square peg, and she did not fit uh, well in the regular school system. And then um, our our son, there were, uh, he was so social, uh, but, but yes, I've had, without going and, and sharing confidences on them, which they wouldn't appreciate, uh, I think there are... Uh, their individual children's needs. Communication was a difficult one with one of our children. You know, you got the stuff that supposedly was in the backpack. I hope that's better now with emailing and, and teachers communicating. But we always had the telephone, you know, and so if somebody wasn't turning something in, it didn't take that long, probably as quick as an email to call and say, well, shoot, he hadn't turned that in in a couple of times. So so communication was hard. And then the very uneven um, teacher quality. We had some of the most amazing teachers in the world. And I remember going to the counselor's office with one of our middle schools who had had um, – Pretty bad math in the sixth grade, uh, not much better in the seventh. And I walked in and I said, we cannot have another bad year of math. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, two bad years of math, but we just couldn't go for all of middle school with bad math. So very uneven uh, teacher quality with instruction. And so, you know, that year, my husband who taught at Bel Air hired um the department chair at Bel Air and said, get her ready hmm. with the background she needs in order to take algebra in the ninth grade. Mm -hmm. So, so yes, I've had frustrations. Yeah. Judith, how about you? Long list of frustrations. So a lot of what Diane said resonates, um, particularly the teacher quality. And I would add with that also leadership quality, um, varying degrees of that in different schools. And my kids have attended elementary, middle, and um, high school. You know, I've got the span of ages, um, and they're currently in those in those schools. Um, and so what really has frustrated me the most, I think, um, beyond the teacher and the leadership quality is um, the complacency, I guess, the acceptance of complacency and mediocrity um, in education, in my kids' education. Um, I have three boys. Um, and they've attended public schools, and 
they are all they all qualify for GT. I don't have you know children with um, you know huge uh, challenges in school in terms of learning disability, special needs. But what ends up happening, and Diane, I know you know this well, um, particularly with one of my children, is um, he gets bored. They get bored in school, and this is not ju- this hasn't just happened in one class or two classes. It's an ongoing problem. And so that lack of challenge, the lack of making sure that students' um, potential is met, allowing them to be creative as much as possible, it just seems like those um, schools and those instances are few and far between. And you have to be a parent and know to search search them out, to know where they exist. Um, It shouldn't be that way. Right, our kids should all be reaching their potential in every single grade in every single classroom. And as a parent, I don't see that happening—not for my ch- children, and I know for many, many more children. Well, so is is it a matter that parents need to have more power uh, within the traditional system? Uh, and if and if indeed that's the case, how how do parents get more power in the system? seems like parents, like Diane's story, parents putting pressure on whether it be teachers or principals. Uh, I, know, I know it worked for, for my kids. Um, is, is that really kind of where we should be headed? I think that could, it's a possible solution. Um, and in order to be able to put pressure and in order to be, to be able to have power, you have to know how to navigate that system, right? And so what I what I see happening, and particularly on my side of town, is parents just don't know, right? And you can send communication home. I mean, I laughed when Diane was talking about that because it's still a problem, even with email, even with social media. There's not enough, um, I don't want to say emphasis, but there's, there's still such a lack of, and that there's a breakdown of communication. And I would say that at every level and particularly with parents. And so if you don't... Um, know how to navigate that system or there's fear around navigating that system which i found to be the case with many parents in um, the communities that i've worked in Um, they saw that maybe there was concerns but there's something that holds them back from from pressuring and if you don't have enough parents you know it's kind of like there has to be that um, power comes with with the masses right so if it's just one parent or two parents or a couple of parents saying, hey, this isn't working, something's wrong, nothing's going to change. The system and, and the, the powers that be are going to say, oh, you're just a few parents, must not be a widespread problem. Yeah. When you have lots and lots of parents showing up at a school board meeting or showing up at a school, things will change. And I see that happening still. Um, so it takes, um, I think, there has to be a concerted effort, you know, organization on the ground happening to um, inform parents of what their rights are, inform parents of what that looks like. What is it that your kids should be learning? You know, what is it that that they should be achieving in a school year? And if they're not, what is it you can do as a parent? I can tell you lots of parents just don't even know that they, that they actually can't hold that power. I, I think that's it, but I also... And I think with accountability, if a child is um, 
Well, I think a couple of things. If a child is struggling, I think it's sometimes easier to get attention for that child. If the child is average or above average, then it's really hard uh, to get attention of the organization. And the reason that's the way it is, is because schools really don't exist for children and parents, right? So, I mean, we talk about stakeholders, but they're really not the loudest voice in terms of being a stakeholder. So we can pretend they are, but you have to be really, really loud. And most parents, as Judah says, are are fearful of that. It's it's better to just bring cupcakes and bring a better present. You think maybe that's a better way to do it than do is the end of my story with the counselor on two bad years of math. And I just said, we can't have another one. You know now who the best eighth grade math teacher is. I don't, but I will after this year. I want the best one. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I don't think most people are going to go in and say that. Like, I mean, you know, just, and I bought Christmas presents too. I mean, I wasn't that I was opposed to that. (laughs) So, so, so who, who, like, in your opinion, who do schools exist for? if not children and parents? They exist for, there's a, there's a system. It's, a, it's an institutional model uh, for the trains to run on time. So it's, it's a, a run on time. And if you can, you get on that train and you get what you get, and I just described, I think it's harder for average and above average kids to get what they need easier. And that's really because of uh, accountability, I think. And then very much it uh, serves the adults. It's a money machine. There, There's lots of money interests that want contracts. Systems have lots and lots of contracts. It's uh, the loudest voice is always the teacher's union. Read the newspaper. Uh, and... Yeah, then the principal's organization, administrators. I mean, you know, those those are the loud voices in the uh, what I used to call the brotherhood and sisterhood of administrators. You know what I'm talking about, Scott. But I mean, you know, sometimes you can get cronyism uh, with not so good principles as a result, because like we've just been friends and buddies, and you have the power to you know get your buddy in a better position. So the the stakeholders, the powerful stakeholders are not parents and children. Yeah, so uh I'm I'm glad you shared that because and you and I have talked about this. That, that was my experience as I sort of grew up in HISD and that was I started thinking uh that uh HISD was all about uh teaching and learning. Uh, the the farther up I got on the org chart, uh, I, I started to learn that there was a competing force. And that competing force was what I call the business and politics of schools. And business and politics is an adult agenda for the most part. Kids, kids aren't interested in who gets a contract uh, or who wins an election. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think you're spot on about that. Hey, I want to shift gears and I, uh, uh, you know, we're living in strange and interesting times. Um, here's the, uh, here's the uh, question. 
Um, up here in Vermont, uh, learning pods have become uh, very popular. I don't know whether they are uh, down in uh, in Texas. You know, up up here in Vermont, we think we're a little more progressive uh, than those folks in in the uh, in the Lone Star State. But uh, uh, <laughs> but what what uh, what do you think of of learning pods? Is this just sort of a fad that's going to get families? through sort of a short-term um, sort of a COVID scare? Or are these, are these things that uh, school districts should start paying attention to and being uh, concerned that eventually these learning pods are just like charter schools did at one time. They're going to start taking market share uh, away from uh, enrollment uh, figures of uh, of school districts, uh, Judith. What do you what do you think about that? Short term or or long term uh, concern? I think it's going to be something long term. You know, when parents realize that something works for their kids and their kids are um, reaching, you know, higher achievement and and doing things that they never would have imagined. You know, parents usually stick with it and. Um, I think there was a school district, uh, might be Mo- Oakland, I can't remember, that was actually um, working with parents and finding ways to help them make those connections for the learning pods. So it wasn't just up to the parents to find out, you know, um, similar age children or, or resources that they could use. The school district actually stepped in to help, which I would have loved to see in Houston. Um, the need is there. And there's community members that have stepped up to fill gaps where needed. Um, the need is still there even with that. And so I think it's going to be something long-term and I'm actually excited to see. I mean, I think when the, then when parents are allowed to have more of a voice and to actually innovate and, you know, they know their kids, they know their kids better than anyone. Right. And what their kids' interests are, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. And teachers can learn that too, but parents know their kids in and out. And so I am really excited to see, um, the outcome of some of these learning pods. I wish that the strengths were more widespread throughout, you know, our state and country. I know that they're, you know, they've really taken off in, in some parts and not all. Does uh, does HISD have any interest in contracting with those learning pods? In as terms far as of... I know, I don't think so, but I would love to really? um, continue huh. that conversation and, and advocate for it. Yeah. Diane, what do you think? Short term? Short-term fad or long-term concern? You know, I I really hope that it will be, uh, I have some concerns, but I really hope that it's going to be a long-term disruptor. I read uh, the phrase, it was a permissionless innovation. I wish Mm. I'd been clever enough to come up with that, but uh, (laughs) it'll be, but I wasn't, but parents just saw the need and jumped in there. I think some of what we talked about before, whether since I didn't ask permission, whether the people uh, who are in the power will will stop it, whether there will be uh, tax money that will follow and help support it. I worry about uh, the gaps. I mean, we already have talked about some of that. The parents who are empowered. Uh, and can advocate for their kids. Uh, I think reach in Oakland, Judith, which might have been one you were talking about, that uh, 
they're trying to help families who might not be as empowered get in pods. And then Austin is doing something and raising money, uh, actual money for the pods that have real life teachers and need money support. It's called Stronger Together. And they're helping uh, families. But first, of course, you have to know about Stronger Together. I mean, you may have the need, but you've got to know about Stronger Together and you've got to be able to get there and, and those kinds of things. So, I mean, I think there are ways to not increase the gap uh, between the haves and have-nots with parents, uh, but we're going to have to be creative with that. And then the other thing, and I'm curious what you and Matt think, uh, guardrails, do we need accountability here? Are there certain things that we want, you know, just as the system moves you along on the conveyor belt, and we know all the problems with that, when we open it up to five parents or ten parents' whims, do we need guardrails on what's happening, particularly if we spend tax money on it? And I, I don't know what the answer to that is. It's a tax. Well, I know, I know my feeling. If I'm a taxpayer, I would want, I wouldn't care if they learn to read well and they they were reading a lot about arts or engineering or something like that. But I want them to read well, and I want them to be able to compute well. So I would need a, a it's the well, it's it's my same objection to uh, vouchers. I always wanted accountability for vouchers, but ultimately, I believe the ultimate accountability is with the parent. Hmm. So that's what I think. Let me let me jump in for a second. We're talking about pods. You guys probably saw this article in the paper. Talks. It's a pod here locally. It's called the Black Girl Magic School Pod. I talked to the uh, woman who set it up. Uh, earlier this week, and she's going to be on the on the podcast in the week or so, Scott. Um, but here's here's her take on it. So she's got a four year old. Uh, you know, she's about to step into public school next year or or potentially private school. But she is going and she's talking to schools now, and she's saying, "Here's what I want. I want my child to be able to explore. I want my child to be able to create. I want my child to have the autonomy to make decisions for themselves." Um, and I'm sitting here listening, going, I wonder how long she's going to last, right? So <laughs> I'm I'm curious what you would advise her because right now they've got this amazing space that they are now doing it on their own. But at some point, she she has every intention of going back into a traditional model. How how would you recommend that she navigate that? Uh, and what type of messaging is possible for her to say? to a school that that they would be willing to, you know, kind of a- accommodate some of her demands. Judith, you're swimming in the river. What do you think? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Um, I would say to her, if what she's doing is working and her child is thriving, why change it, right? And, you know, there's lots of reasons to want to um, remain in the public schools or not remain in the public schools. But at the end of the day, and this is what I tell parents all the time when they ask me, you know, very similar question. You have to do what the best thing is for your child, and only you know what that best thing is. And um, I think it's a really sometimes you know like a it's a it's a very personal question, I think. And um, I think there's guilt associated with it for a lot of parents who feel like they have pulled their kids out of public schools or a traditional public school um, because of the messaging and the narrative that um, encircles that. But at the end of the day. 
your kid's trajectory is, and their education is what matters the most. And it took me a long time to actually even come to that acknowledgement for my own children. Mm-hmm. I can vouch for that now, please, and do. Okay, so here's here's the uh, sixty four thousand dollar question, and uh, Judith, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, uh, take you off this question unless you want to answer it, and uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna pose it to Diane. So Diane, uh, if the two Johnson kids uh, were uh, in public school today, uh, would you put them in a learning pod? Uh, with uh, neighborhood kids um, around your house uh, that you knew were safe, uh, had quarantined, and uh, or would you would you uh, stick with uh, the public school system? No, I would definitely try a pod in the current environment without a question. I mean, and and then even long term. Uh, I would consider a pod. Uh, pods are going to be different, right? <laughs> because you do have control on them. They're going to really vary. And I might, uh, uh, you know, particularly with our oldest and in the early grades, it, it was, a, I mean, I should have homeschooled is what I should have done, but I didn't have the courage to do it. So um, I think there are definitely kids that, uh, need it right now, right? And and they need it right now because of COVID. But there are kids who need it right now without COVID. That that school yeah. just plain is not working for them. Mm-hmm. And so I think those exist. And then I think I, I read that there was a study uh, by the Heritage Foundation by um, Matthew Ladner and Vedrick. Maybe I'm not sure the second person. But it said that parents were, um, about half the parents said that their kids were stressed not being at in school, and about a third said they were much happier and much less stressed. So, you know, I don't know, but they interviewed at least some sampling, and it was enough to be written up. So, so I guess that's really my point on the choosing, and I certainly know it in my own family, but I think in... In the larger picture, uh, there are maybe a third, maybe it's 33% of the kids that really are just much happier not being in school. And then if they could have an add-on instead of, you know, like a pod where the learning was better than what they have, then it, it could be really great. I also think that there are teachers who crave autonomy. So um, it will be interesting to see on those places where they actually are hiring teachers, whether those teachers will do their own recruiting. And then, then of course, we get to TRS and we get to, you know, how do you navigate that? Well, maybe it's okay if you have a rich wife or a rich husband you know, and you don't have to worry too much about your TRS or you don't you don't have to worry about your health insurance. But for it to expand uh, with tax dollars, and the, those are going to be some of the questions about uh, that the deciders will determine, I think. Judith, you want to answer or take a pass? Yeah, no, I actually want to just make a comment that um, when Diane was speaking, it made me think of, you know, it's, Parents and children don't have time to wait, and you can have all the 
idealism in the world and come into a school and think, okay, if I just advocate enough, if I work with the administration, if I organize parents on the ground, we can make this work. Um, I can speak for pers- with personal experience. It doesn't always work that way. And, um, you know, after being told for my neighborhood school to find another school for my children, if I wasn't happy, instead of working with us as parents to make the school the best place it could be, um, was really disappointing and frustrating on so many levels. So I tell parents, um, you know, it's, it's wonderful to want to, to work with schools and with other parents. And I think it can be done with the right leadership and, and, you know, that openness to be willing to work with parents, but you know, how long does that take? One year, two years, five years, 10 years? By then your kids in middle school and high school, they don't have time to wait. So we're near the end of our time, but uh, uh, if if you're game, uh, Matt and I uh, have three uh, newspaper uh, headlines that we want to read to you and just get your very quick reaction. I have two, and Matt, I think, has one. Here's my first one. This was in the uh, Texas Tribune, by the way, a couple days ago. TEA gives districts option to end online only classes for struggling students. A quick reaction to that, Judith. Is HISD going to do that? I mean, we have to follow what um, the TA guidelines, right? We're, we're under their mandate. Uh, when I first saw that, my concern was, you know, we're, the families that are choosing to go in person are largely on the west side of our district. And the kids that desperately need to be in the classroom are the ones that are not, you know, in large numbers attending school. And a lot of that is because of the fear of COVID. Um, you know, we know from the news that black and brown communities have been hit the hardest by COVID and parents have very real fear, fears around that. And so they're opting to keep their children at home. And if the district says, you know, you have to come in person or we can't educate your child, you know, a parent, what are they going to do? You know, I think some will say, okay, I'll send my kid, but there will be others that still have a very real fear. So how do we address that? It's, um, it really worries me. I want the kids in school. I think the best place for them to be. No, in the current environment, uh, I I don't think the state autumn, even if the child is struggling uh, for the reasons that Judith said, there's a, you know, there's a, a immune compromised parent or an elder or something. No, I don't think you, I don't think you reach in and force a child to go to uh, school in a somewhat threatening environment uh, against their will. I do not. Yeah. My quick take on that. Uh, maybe this kid was also struggling inside the traditional system even before they left. <laughs> right. True. That would be my guess. Yeah. yeah. Here, here's the second uh, headline. Many Texas families, I think this was just yesterday in the Texas Tribune, many Texas families say remote learning isn't working and they want it fixed. Reaction, Diane? I think it does need to be fixed. I think we have, um, uh, you know, you, you have silly assignments in traditional school day, but I think as we pile on and try to figure this thing out while we're doing I no, I don't think we fine-tuned uh, online learning at all, and it does need to be fixed better. Do you, do you have much time? Because I've got a funny story. 
Tell her. Yeah. The, well, a college friend of mine who's a grandparent, and they have divided Conquer, three grandchildren, and her husband, retired husband has one, and then each of the parents have one, so they're in pretty good shape. They've got their own thought. Well, one of the assignments was that the child needed to draw a new kind of animal with a different feature, different legs, five different features from the other from other animals. She said it ruined a perfectly good afternoon for four hours uh, with the one with the first grader because he just doesn't think like, why would you do that? Why would you put five different features on them? So until we don't have better ideas than that and we don't ruin a first grader and their grandparents afternoon with that activity. Whose purpose, like if y'all can think of what the purpose was other than a filler, I don't know. But anyway, I think we got to do better. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Judith, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I just feel like there's a lack of creativity with virtual learning. I feel, you know, we have all this technology at our hands and tons of websites and platforms that our kids use. And, and I feel sometimes that teachers feel like they, they're stuck using um, what's given to them. And then you've got teachers, you know, um, that are teaching simultaneously kids online and kids in their classroom. And they have to all social distance the ones that are there. So basically it's kids going, you know, doing virtual school in the school. They're just showing up with their computers. Um, so, yeah, there's a huge need. And I, and I see this as a parent with my three kids in the system as well. Um, one is actually going in person. He begged me to go in person. He's like, I can't do this online learning. Um, the other two have made it work. I mean, I think it's just, you know, like Diane mentioned earlier, some kids, um, it's actually better for them to stay home and other kids desperately need um, that teacher interaction and, and socialization. So, and I think we can do a lot better than we're doing. Yeah. Before we get to Matt, Matt's headline, um, I'll take it out of Texas for a minute. I'll just talk about Vermont. Uh, Vermont parents are furious right now with the Vermont uh, teachers and principals. You know why? Their their take on this is you had last spring to figure this out. And over the summer, you promised us that this was going to get better. And it's not better. That's the frustration, I think, at least up here. Maybe it's the same frustration down in Texas, too. Matt, what's your uh, headline? Well, you know, I, I've got a headline, but I also wanted to ask about this something we've been talking to a lot of parents about, which is, you know, separate and aside from the headline issue, Scott, I, I think this may be a higher priority. Um, we've talked to dozens and dozens of families about what I'm about to share with you, and I want to hear your thoughts about it. So right now, traditional school, adult decided, you know, education, um, adults teach students, uh, teach students aren't allowed really to explore the areas that are of interest to them. Um, uh, you know, there's some element of competitiveness, emphasis on grades, emphasis on standardization, all that stuff, right? That's traditional. Uh, but then there's this other reality, which is non-traditional, which is learner-led, which is it's not based on grades. It's based on engagement. It's not based on um, – you know, fixed curriculum. It's based on flexibility in the in the learner's interests. Um, we've talked to parents and said, "All right, 
Uh, where is your child on a, on a continuum between these two extremes? Where's your child now? Where do you want them to be? Them, them to be? And, and every single parent has said they wanted their child to be further on this kind of new, Scott and I call it uh, self-directed or lifelong learner trajectory. But, and, and this right moment right now with COVID is this window to begin exploring a new model of education. And every parent we've talked to, every single one, and every kid we've talked to has said they want more of the latter, but it's not happening. So tell me, one, why not? And two, uh, is this something that the that now in this moment we actually should be moving into with all speed? What are your thoughts? It's so hard. You know, when you have systems that have existed for so long, it's so difficult for I mean, I would even say the children to shift to a way of learning, right? Like we're so used to doing things a certain way. And so it's it's just so hard to shift. I don't know what it is. It's human nature. Um, but I think we absolutely need to. And I, I felt like when, you know, when we were first in this crisis, I thought this is our opportunity hmm. to really change and do um, right by our kids. But, um, you know, you're, you're talking about, very, very different, you know, mindsets from teachers, from principals um, to really almost kind of let loose, right? And let the children um, direct and decide. And that's not how teachers are taught at teacher colleges or teacher prep programs. Um, it's not our, how our system is designed. And so you really need um, to shake the system up, you know, from the bottom up and top down and, and how that happens. Um, I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I think we, um, uh, as the example I gave you, you know, certainly after those basics, those guardrail things we agree on, there would be so much room uh, for kids, maybe with the teacher's uh, approval, but to explore things in their own interest. Uh, but we, our temptation is to mimic the traditional school day, right? So, so we'll assign more of my idea, even if my idea is kind of silly, you know, instead of allowing children to even go in, what would that be? 20% of the space, 30% of the space where they could pursue. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's too bad, really. I mean, this, this was a, a time that we could have reckoned with this, and it's too bad. So I don't blame people. And, Texas and Vermont to saying, I thought you were going to fix this, but yeah, it's going to be a missed opportunity. I mm. totally think that. And it's not like we haven't had missed opportunities in the past too. And right. and I think, I think it just serves uh, well to, to reemphasize Judith's point. Matt and I talk about this all the time. What a powerful, powerful paradigm traditional school is. Um, and trying to break away from that is so, so difficult. Um, but uh, parents have the power, uh, in, 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 my, in, in my opinion, I think in, in, in our opinions, right? Oh, yeah. um, the, the, the public schools exist, uh, or they should exist for parents and their children, uh, period. Yeah. So, Matt, uh, I think we're going to have to uh, uh, spread the uh, the podcast from 30 minutes to about two hours um, <laughs> because we got we have a lot of uh, uh, things to decide on these on these podcasts. Sure. Sure. 
Yeah, two hours. Yeah. That's exactly what uh, our listeners would want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but now here's 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 something for for parents. Um, parents uh, with with these two ladies, uh, Diane Johnson, Judith Cruz, uh, you're getting a peek uh, inside of how decisions are made at the really the highest level uh, of, of school districts. But uh, I want you to rewind it. I want you to listen to it because at least as far as these two uh, board members, one past, one present, I, I, I really think that they have a great, great point of view uh, on the rights and responsibilities, uh, the vision and the hopes uh, of parents because uh, both of them uh, are mothers and and parents themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Judith, Diane, want to thank you so much. Thank it's you been guys. a great conversation. You. Matt, you know, I, he's not going to say this, but he's kind of jealous <laughs> that you have school board member after your name. I know. I've got nothing. And Look at it's just an I, empty I, name. 20, 2022, babe. <laughs> 2022. I, I'll be your campaign manager. Oh, yeah. From Vermont. Good. Yeah, that'll Absolutely. help a lot. Absolutely. <laughs> Listen, well, guys, Matt, I, I wish you well with your this. I really appreciate what you're doing and trying to at least heighten awareness and give parents uh, courage because it's scary. So good job. Thanks for your appreciate leadership, that. guys. Thank appreciate you. that. He's Matt. I'm Dr. Scott, and this is The Education Game. Thank you.